Shall I jump in while we're waiting for Louise? Um, one of the issues I've got at the moment with the HSE approach is that we should be taking readings at recirculating filters, but I can't get clarification on how, why, when we do this. So part of the question I had for this was, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Uh, what, what's people's views on this um, for the various different types of systems we've got, be it for solvents, for wood dust, flower dust, you know, whatever it is that's recirculating, what approach are others taking? I don't think a very quick, simple reading taken once at a recirculating filter tells you very much at all. I'm not sure why you would take that necessarily, um, unless you could relate it to operator exposure. Um, not telling you a great deal but we're seeing it more and more on reports. System failed, hasn't got any recirculating filter, air assessment datas um, or anything like that. So yeah, just, just putting that out there in terms of what do this think of that? What do this views are? Hi, Mark, it's Catherine. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can, Catherine. Okay, so I haven't really thought this through, but just initial reactions are that um, as as um, good LEV testers, I think we try to take on quite a lot of the issues without a lot of support sometimes from the regulators. Um, we do see recirculating filters that fail when we go and do a test, um, but I think your point is that we go once a year um, and the responsibility really lies on the client to make sure that those recirculating filters are working okay for the whole year. So my opinion is that um, rather than actually doing a test once a year, that it would be better if we were to do anything and the regulations would be better placed to make sure that the clients have got the right processes and procedures in place for managing it themselves in-house. So that's just, I suppose, my initial thoughts. I agree, and I, th I think part of the, the the majority of the systems that we we're looking at in this situation, I think, are predominantly wood shops, uh, where you've got things like the cloth filters recirculating back into the atmosphere. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what we're talking about in the majority of cases. Um, or welding fume as well. That's another one. Um, that's a whole other bag uh, can of worms um, with gases and, and things being recirculated back into the atmosphere. But the, the guidance really isn't clear. Um, it just says undertake air sampling. Um, but my view is unless you're doing operator exposure assessment so you can relate it to the actual workplace exposure limits, then why why do it? You know, it, it's, it's indicative at best, but that's all you're getting, an indicative reading. I don't think it's enough to fail an LEV system if you haven't got that data. Um, just for the recirculating filter, if you have operator exposure assessment data, for example. And this comes back to something we talked about at the conference. Should you have operator exposure assessment to go hand in hand with the LEV report? I think for the majority of cases, the answer is yes for us. I think it all adds up to the bigger picture, doesn't it? You know, the, the handheld equipment, it's not perfect. It's not, you know, it's not an exact science. It depends where you hold it and it depends how you're doing the reading. But together with your visual assessments and what you see happening in the space, um, what you see, the condition of the filter, and whether you can see dust coming through or, or telltale signs, then 
that just adds another um, element of evidence to, to your case. Um, but I do I do think that you, you do need air monitoring, proper air monitoring to prove control effectiveness. Um, and I think, you know, as a test, some new test systems, you're going to be putting that in your report almost every single time. Again, you're only testing on that day. You know, I, I see far too many resurfacing field units without the alarms, without the warning um, uh, devices that are needed to tell the operator if, if that, that filter is passing dust or fumes. Um, I also think there's a, a number of suppliers on the market who just don't understand what their recirculating filters are actually recirculating. Uh, mobile weld fume units, yeah, they take out the particulate, but they don't take out the gases, not that I've seen. Um, and yet they're sold and used for you know long periods of time in, in quite small spaces. They should come with a health warning, in my opinion. Jane? Yes. I think you just need to speak. That's pretty All right, out. okay. I'll put my hand down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wasn't sure what the protocol was. Um, <clears throat> I think recirculating filters have a place. Um, we haven't differentiated between recirculating filters within a workplace and recirculating filters situated outside because uh, the two exist alongside each other and um, the problems of the filtration being ineffective apply equally to both but in one instance there is um, exposure to workers in the vicinity and in the other instance there isn't initially a problem with exposure to workers in the vicinity because what happens is after a period of time there's deterioration in the flow rates because of the filter issues and that affects the effectiveness of the extraction generally so that will then affect the workers in the workplace so there is a slight difference between the two in terms of how quickly people working in the workplace are going to be affected by that deterioration of the filter um, there are plenty of methods of putting alarms and controls in place to identify when there is a problem with the LEV and we all know that that's highly recommended. Um, it's not given as essential, the HSC used those weasel words that, you know, well if you don't have some form of airflow indicator and pressure gauge, how else will you always know that the LEV is effective? I wish they'd just, you know, jump off the fence and say, what you need is effective gauges um, because with those in place provided and this is a big proviso provided the employees understand what those gauges mean and understand what they need to do and act upon it um, then there's no specific issue um, the issue is when they're allowed to deteriorate um, and I'm very much in favour of using direct reading instruments to supplement all of the other information that you've recorded during your LEV assessment to see whether or not there is potentially an issue. It gives another layer of data um, if you can identify that particulate is passing 
through the filter, or you can use one of the other monitors that are readily available. There's all sorts of VOC monitors and monitors for gases and mists that will identify whether or not the substance that you're dealing with or an appropriate tracer substance is being leaked back through the filter. And I have said for many years, and I still say, I fail to understand how anyone can carry out routine LEV testing without additionally doing some form of sampling in the return air of the filter, whatever the substance. In that instance, Jane, you know, if you get a result, what are you comparing it to? If you're not comparing it with workplace exposure, it's indicative, and I'm not disagreeing with you from that point, that it's indicative that there is dust coming through the filter, and it's maybe pointing you down the direction of you need to then do some air sampling, but you can probably tell that by looking around the filter anyway in some instances. I'm not saying we do or don't in, in, in every situation, but I think if you look around the filter unit, if there's dust on the floor, it's clear it's coming through or the, the, the management of it isn't right. But it all... There isn't always dust coming through. It's still, sorry, just let me finish. Sorry, Jen, just let me finish. I'm just going to say, if, 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 you, if you've got some results that are indicative, it's still saying, you know, that if that's... If you can't relate it to workplace exposure limits, it's a generally, it, it's not telling you an awful lot. Well, with respect, it is telling you something. You don't always have dust and deposits around to tell you that the filter's not working effectively. What it does tell you is that the, the, the filtration is not effective and that the filters need to be replaced. And it will often tell you that before there are other levels of indication. And what you do at that time is you recommend replacement of the filtration if you feel it's going to be up to the job when it's been replaced. If not, you're recommending something else. And you would also, in most circumstances, recommend some personal sampling to be carried out because what you've done is just an indicative reading. And particularly in circumstances when you can't actually see deposits around, it can be very useful to say to the operator, to the owner, to whoever you're liaising with, come and take a look at this and show them what the readings are coming through the filters and that you know you can put a thousand words in a report which people will ignore you start having photographs you start having a graph that you can show them you start having a direct reading instrument when you can say have you got a minute can you just come and look at this it really emphasizes to the people on the ground that there is a problem and they need to do something about it um, and workplace exposure limits are not the only standards that we're working to. Obviously, a lot of things need to be as far as reasonably practicable below the workplace exposure limit. But there are also standards, standards for various types of extraction, which actually specify what the amount of return there should be in the cleaned filtered air in the workshop. So the standards for chip and dust extraction systems, for example, require that alarms should be going off something I think it's 0 0.3 milligrams and that the system should automatically shut down at 0 0.2 or maybe it's 0 0.1 milligrams I'd have to go and check the standard to be sure but there are very low levels of dust being returned through the filtered air which should trigger an alarm frequently that alarm isn't there and these standards are applicable to larger wood waste extraction systems but some of them also apply to the smaller systems and there's no reason why you know if you're working with a large extraction system there is 
an unacceptable, very low level of returned particulate, why wouldn't you also apply that to a smaller system? You know, the, the lungs of the workers in that smaller workshop are no less sensitive to disease and deterioration and harm than the lungs of the workers in the larger workshop. And just because that employer chose to install several smaller units rather than one big unit doesn't mean to say they should be allowed to pollute the lungs of their workers. I've, I really don't understand the reluctance to use what is not a particularly expensive tool to add to the information and very importantly add to the illustration that you can present to the users because what all of us want is for the people using the equipment to be using it and maintaining it properly and anything we can do to demonstrate to them that the fact it appears to be sucking is not the be all and end all you know there's a lot more to it and um, it's got to be in everybody's interest you know we're, we're all working towards that goal aren't we Mark? Um, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't disagree with that at all, Jane. What, what I'm saying is, and I think you're right, it's the defining the limits so that we're all working to the same standard. So, you know, I'll, I'll pick Adrian as an example. He might say, right, we, we pick if there's anything coming through the filter, we fail it. You might be saying 0.3. We might be saying 0.5. It, it, it's, it's having a, a uniform standard across the industry that we're all working to. That's That's the difference where at the moment we haven't got that some people are saying we're not using that figure some are, are picking figures like you say and i think that's yeah. the key it's trying to define what we say is okay what i think is reasonable is to um to say that the maximum would be 10 percent of the workplace exposure limit if it was something that does, doesn't have to be as low as reasonably practicable and that would be what we would work to and we would alert the client to the fact that there is concern if we were anywhere between a third and a half of 10 percent of the workplace exposure limit for the substance that we're using unless it's something as low as reasonably practicable and then you need to be looking at the other data and advising accordingly and i i think that's quite reasonable so with wood waste at the moment I would ignore the fact that it's sort of three milligrams and going to two milligrams and I'd work to the two because, you know, nobody's going to go suddenly leap up and down. Is it next January or the January after when it changes and, and suddenly start doing something different? So we should all really be working to a far, as far below the two milligrams. So 10 percent of that is 0.2. And we would be raising an alarm if it was anywhere, you know, up to 0.1 we'd be looking for it to be significantly below that um, my experience talking of woodworking systems is that it is perfectly possible for a properly designed well-maintained woodworking system with recirculatory filters inside the building to be significantly below 0.1 milligrams of particulate per cubic meter in the returned air and if it was anywhere near that figure or above it you know alarm bells would start ringing. I think the other, the other issue we've got is that's fine, but it's then relating it to potential exposure. So if you've got a woodworking system that's putting out 0.3, but it's only used for half an hour a day, and the workplace exposure, actual exposure for the operator is, you know, is negligible to, to zero, then is that okay? So, and this is what I'm trying to do, is trying to relate this, what you're getting at the filter, to actual exposures so you're building in the whole you know how, how often is the system used how you know how, how heavy is the usage on that system 
we've got to account for all of that. We can't just say, oh, it's 0.3 that's a, or it's above, that's a fail. Because actually, if it's only used for 10 minutes once a week, that might be okay. Sorry to jump in. Oh, no, I don't, think, I don't think that is okay. Because... I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying that as an example, that you've got to relate it to, to the, the usage and the, the time it's used. This, no, this you only need to, to do that if you're trying to relate it to a personal exposure, which we're not trying to do. We're not specifically relating it to a personal exposure. We're relating it to the statutory obligation to maintain that LEV in good, clean, effective condition at all times. It's then up to the client to decide, well, we only use it for half an hour a week, so we don't think the HSC will come and kick us, so we're not going to do anything about it. But I'm we need to tell them whether it's effective. And if they're only using it half an hour a week this week, who knows what's going to happen next week or the week after? Um, when they get a big order in or when circumstances change. You have to relate it to operator exposure and that's the whole purpose of that system is to, to, to control the operator's exposure. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all directly relatable to the exposure for me and, and you have to account for what they're doing. And if it's defined in the report that we say, we tested this under this circumstance based on this situation and in this situation it's okay, you know, I, I think you, you have to look at that. I think you can't discount what they're actually doing and, and, and the, the potential exposure of the operators. Guys, if I well, can interject, with, we don't yeah. want to have it just as a bipartisan discussion. Um, both Melvin and Craig have both got their hands up. Could we allow them to say something, please? Mm -hmm. uh, and just to update you, I've had a message. You probably all had it from Louise. Apparently her microphone is broken and she's trying to set it up on her computer. So that's the reason we're not hearing from Louise. So um, I've jumped in. Melvin, Craig, um, tell us what, you, what you'd like to say. I'm happy for Craig to go before me. Thank you very much. So HSE say for recirculating systems, they should be installed with a high efficiency. The sock filters are by no means high efficiency. So how on earth can we can we use these systems? Certainly in woodwork systems, because that's when you see the sock filters, but even the little portable weld systems, they don't have a, a high efficiency filter on nine nine times out of ten. How how can or how do we think the suppliers are able to put this into market um, as testers? Commission engineers, um, service engineers, how do we go about this, do you think? For me, there's, there's some really good points that Mark's made. Um, how do you make the assessment? There are procedures for undertaking tests, but they all have limitations. For instance, if you look at our current um, BS standard for recirculation fume cupboards, they tell you that you can release 800 parts per million of IPA inside the cabinet, and provided you're not measuring more than 40 parts per million at the end of the filter, that's okay. That filter has passed the test. That's not to say that 40 ppm is acceptable to the end user. Now, they're currently looking at recirculation filtration fume covers in Europe, and what they're suggesting is you only release 200 parts per million and you shouldn't be measuring more than one percent of the oel at the end of the filter so it's not just necessarily whether you wish to undertake a test 
it's what type of test are you going to undertake? Also, we have to consider some of the limitations that the test procedures also present. Um, if we're doing tests inside a, an intrinsic te type test room, we can set the conditions to be exactly what we require them to be. But when you're performing tests out in the field, there are other influences that are in that area. So, for instance, if you're using, taking this instance, IPA, and you're using a, a PID to do your detection, you could be picking up background levels of coffee, eau de cologne, um, air freshener. So your background levels could be higher than, than the actual value that you've decided is your benchmark. So Mark has got a really good point. Where do you start with it? How do you, how do you reassure the um, end user that you're actually evaluating what they need to know? Sometimes the procedures you have to perform the test may not allow you to do that. So where do you go with it? And I think Mark's right. We do need to try and get some improved guidance, even if it's not numbers, a framework that would allow us to make a reasonable, a reasonable assessment of how we can do that. I agree, Melvin, and I think it's it's getting that consistency as ever with us. You know, we've seen that recently in the conference. We're all taking different approaches and coming to different conclusions on identical systems. You know, we've got a wealth of experience between us. We shouldn't be having inconsistencies with our decision making. It should be straightforward. And I think, you know, we've just highlighted there in the last 10, 15 minutes that different differences in approaches. And it really shouldn't be that tricky. You know, if you've got a wood dust system like Craig says with a cloth filter, you know, we should have a limit. If they are going to permit companies to use those, what are we saying is okay to come out the, the end of those next to the operator? Yeah, the, the, I mean, get, sorry, getting back to recirculation, filtration, fume covers again. Uh, often the testers are, are prohibited by what they're allowed to do as well, because some of the uh, materials that are, are used for testing filters, recirculation filtration ones, um, IPA, sulfur dioxide, ammonia, formaldehyde. Some, some users do not want you to introduce those type of materials into their environment, even if it's in a controlled condition. You know, so, and, and you can also do tests on recirculation filtration cupboards where the um, uh, chemicals that you use to test the, the, the carbon filtration side are not particularly good for the particulate filter if there's one fitted in there. You know, they can ruin it. And you need to make an assessment. And I still think it, rather than just give a number, there needs to be a framework that allows the tester to make a, a reasonable assessment of, of what those numbers should be. Because at the end of it all, all of our testing is based on our assessment of that condition. And as Adrian often points out, at that particular moment in time. None of us can guarantee anything once we leave the room, but I think it's the framework that's needed rather than just give precise numbers along the way, a, a good framework that we can all follow. Catherine, did you want to say something? Uh, yeah, I thought that was all really interesting. Um, just a couple of things. So, um, Mike, you seem to be coming at it from the occupational hygiene um, point of view, which I completely understand. If we did a test um, 
with a um, dust monitor and found 10% uh, of the well coming through the, the filter and it was only used for 10 minutes a day, then our recommendations would be the eight hour exposure limit for that uh, worker was acceptable. And we would be alerting the client that if there was to use it for anything anything significant, you know, so many hours a day that they would be starting to have issues in terms of getting close to the um, acceptable levels. From the other side, from an LEV performance point of view, um, first of all, I think if you if you've got a system that's been commissioned and it's got the right type of filtering to start with, that that's the first thing. Has it got the right type of filter? Secondly, um, I think part of what Jane was saying, and I just wanted to clarify this, is that another reason for doing the test as an LEV tester is that if you have a filter that should be performing to a certain level and there is more breakthrough than you would expect, then that, if you leave that system un, un, um, without doing anything about it, the performance is going to reduce over time. You're going to get a, a reduction um, in airflows. So I think there's that side of it that it's indicating that, but it's also giving you some indication of what exposure levels might be. So is the two thick are those two two of the reasons that we need to be um, kind of looking at, at the results from a from a test at the filter? Does that make sense? Have I, have I kind of understood it correctly from both points of view? Yeah, I think you're right, Catherine. I think that if if the manufacturer supplies a figure that they, their system will perform down to, you're quite right. Then yeah, absolutely test against it. And I and I'm I'm not saying I think there is a place for testing at the you know to see that filters are sighted correctly. For example, it gives you an indication is everything okay. It's indicative, you know, but. I think we just have to be so careful defining what we're and that's that's exactly right it's what are you doing the test for what are you comparing it against and what are you trying to achieve with those results I, also, I think sorry Melvin no, go on, you, carry on. Oh, no I always bow to you Melvin I, I, I was also going to say that it, manufacturers don't always just qualify by the type of chemical or material that's going to pass through their filter. They, they often talk about the frequency of the use and the volumes that are passed through. And, and quite often with fume cupboard size, they talk about the temperatures as well, because all of those can influence how those numbers change. So um, when they talk about recirculation filtration cupboards, the majority of manufacturers are, are, are very good. They ask the user, what types of chemicals might you use, what the frequency, and they will design a filter to achieve that. But where it becomes difficult is, is often when a user will want to change a filter, for instance, the filter fails or is saturated, they don't always revert back to that original supplier. They'll, they'll look around for an alternative that might be slightly more competitive or, or offer or, or improve conditions, and they fit those filters. But then you're back to trying to make an assessment of does that filter have the same capabilities as the filters that's been removed? So you sometimes it's not straightforward in the detection capabilities of the equipment that you use and, and also uh, the process of, of the test are, are really important because just minor changes in those.
can make a significant difference on the type of numbers that you can measure. So I think Catherine made some really good points and she seems to have exactly understood what I was saying in that when you're looking at the um, efficiency and the effectiveness of the filter, um, you're looking at it for, for two reasons. Um, I don't want to keep disagreeing with Mark, but personal exposure consists of considerably more than the amount of um, contaminant that is being returned through the filter. And you cannot possibly take the measurements that you've taken of the dust that's coming back through the filter and say, um, oh, right, it's perfectly OK. This person's personal exposure, which relates to all the things they do during the day, which may or may not be controlled by any LEV at all, let alone effective LEV. You know, we're, it's apples and pears and, you know, horses and donkeys. We're not looking at exactly the same thing. What you're doing is adding a layer of information that feeds into the risk assessment that the client needs to make and you're giving them some advice and that advice is often that this is indicative of the performance of the LEV not being quite right you need to replace the filters not replacing the filters is ultimately going to lead to issues further down the line with the LEV and not replacing them. I mean, maybe the filters are just not fitted correctly. You know, we don't know. Maybe they're poor quality fabric filters where the system was originally supplied with a high quality filter and they've been on the internet and bought some cheap and nasty Vietnamese or Chinese replacement, not to be racist about it, but they've, they've bought some cheap imported um, product to replace it rather than the originally specified product. Um, because let's face it, most fabric filters and most systems using fabric filters are not supplied with anywhere near the amount of data that they should be in terms of the, the quality and the, the qualities of that specific filter, uh, coatings that they've got, how they've been tested. All of that is a huge, huge, great big hole in the LEV industry, which needs to be filled in. But in the meantime, when you're giving the client that information, what you're saying to them is when that person is stood here downstream of the return air from the LEV from that single source, this is possibly and not terribly accurately likely to be the kind of levels they are exposed to. Um, you cannot relate it to their personal exposure any more than that because you don't know what else they're doing. It's just part of the big picture that should be part of our everyday life. Sorry, my laptop died and I'm trying to do it on the phone and I don't can know I, where all Can I come are. in there? So I, can, I, I agree with you, Jane. Um, I, I, you know, air, personal air monitoring is different to the effectiveness of a filter um and we don't want to get them confused uh they both have their place they're both important um and they are part of the whole control effectiveness um but they're not the same thing um the the handheld um equipment test is an indicative value to say we think you might have a problem you need to go look into it further it's not uh, a, a black and white everything's fine here there is no exposure um to the operator so i i we shouldn't confuse the two and both do have their place um, in the overall control effectiveness and the control solution. I do think there is an onus which needs to be put back on the manufacturers 
of recirculating filters. Um, very, very few of them actually specify what you need to do, what when it needs to be changed. Um, and uh, they should be saying in their commissioning documents, and we've gone nearly 35, nearly 40 minutes without mentioning commissioning documents. Um, but in the commissioning documents, it should specify what uh, we should be looking for when we're testing these systems. And part of that will be, when does the filter need to be changed? Um, is it done on pressure? Is it done on dust in the air? It should be on, not dust, I say, but you know, what is in the air? Uh, and, and risk assessment, we, again, when we go out testing these systems, we should be asking to see the risk assessment, which then should detail when systems are being used, how long they're being used for. Um, and, and so when we're doing that assessment and it is only being used for an hour a year, um, which I, something I was told the other day, or whether it is being used for 12 hours every day, that should be part of the risk assessment. And this is why we need to get those documents and to understand how the system is being used. Okay. That's my, my bit. Can I just come in there? With, um, we're talking about manufacturers giving um, qualification of performance. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I've never seen any manufacturer uh, uh, confirm a com uh, compliance requirement for the end user in the as-used condition. That I've never seen that on the manufacturer's data. All the manufacturer will tell you do what their equipment does. So. <laughs> you're getting a bit of a catch-22. You can't hold the manufacturer responsible for what the end user is actually doing with the equipment. All you can ask the manufacturer to do is to confirm that the, the, the performance that he says or they say their equipment can achieve is achieved. So there, there is a hand-in-hand -hand situation whereby you have to test for the manufacturer's compliance, which means testing the filters, then you have to do a separate assessment as to whether the end users get the protection, if that's what you want to achieve, because otherwise you can't ask the manufacturer to be responsible for what the end user is doing. They don't accept that responsibility. They only give a qualification on the product performance, not its as-use performance. And as we all know, that's where these things fall down. We need, we need to get a bridge somewhere that allows people to make that assessment and, 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 and unless people understand the, 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 crucial, the crucial need to perform an as-installed test on this equipment and then an as-used test, we won't ever achieve those two things. <coughs> Melvin, Melvin makes a very valid point there. Um, and what I'd like to bring you all back to the fact is that what we're talking about here is part of a Reg 9 examination and test, a thorough examination and test. And we need to look and see what Reg 9 actually says. And Reg 9 relates back to Reg 7. It does not relate back to Reg 6. That's what Reg 10 does. Reg 10 relates back to Reg 6. And to be fair, it would appear from discussions with HSC that in the revision of COSH, which whenever it will come, they've said that they're concerned that Reg 6 and Reg 7 are not tight enough closely tied together and that that will be addressed in some future so fair enough but you know it says under reg 9 the first the first statement under reg 9 is that we're doing the testing on systems provided under reg 7 
It then goes on to say what the purpose of the testing is, and it's to ensure that the equipment is in efficient state, efficient working order, good repair, and clean condition. And it states that very, very clearly in the reg. If we go to the approved code of practice, which is pretty tough in the sense that although it's an approved code, it clearly tells us. Now, I'll read it out to you. It says the objective of this regulation is to ensure that every element, and that would include the recirculating filters, every element of a control system, uh, a control measure, beg your pardon, performs as originally intended. Oh, it then goes on to talk about and to identify significant deterioration in any element of the control measure. Now, that kind of ties back into what Melvin was saying, that manufacturers don't give us what the intended performance is, should be, expected to be on recirculating filters in many cases. But we must tie it back to the fact that currently, currently, the legislation for Reg 9 examination and test ties back to Reg 7. And it's talking about looking at the elements to see if they are performing as originally intended and indeed if there has been any deterioration. So that should maybe help to focus us down on what we ought to be doing with recirculating filters. To do nothing is not an option, but I think it's good to open it up to say what are the options. My pennyworth is that what you do in a recirculating filter, to some extent, is going to go back to Reg 6, having just said that Reg 6 is not really part of it, it's Reg 7. But to some extent, we have to look at the risk and the degree of testing or the protocol that you would use for testing recirculating filter has to have recognition of what the risks are. So the, it, it may not be that there's one size fits all. There'll be different types of testing levels, if you like, depending on the risk. Okay, I'm going to shut up now. And let, I, I, what I'd like to, to hear is there's, there's three or four of us doing a lot of discussion and there's 27 on the, on the unit. I'd really like to hear a lot more from you guys who are a little bit quiet um, because your views are every bit as valid as some of us more um, verbal people. So if anybody else hasn't chipped in would like to say something, uh, I personally would love to hear what other people think. Oh, well, that didn't work. Hi, Bill. It's Kenneth here. Can you hear me? We can all hear you very well, yes. Kenneth. You okay. carry on. I don't know, and I'm listening in using the kind of term reasonable assumptions, which is in some way what we'll have to do, is there scope for even a series of, I'm thinking like the HSE uh, sheets on and processes uh, and kind of recommendations for control. Really, an ideal thing would be a worksheet or some sort of information sheet for testers for say, for wood dust systems. Okay, what are reasonable filter efficiencies for needle felt filters? What should we be looking at for testing? Because it's, it's all so different for each type of system. Melvin's talking about recirculation, uh, fume cupboards, we've got wood dust, we've got weld system. The two biggies quite often in testing are welding and, and wood dust. 
you know, is, is a scope of us coming together to form like, some information sheets for what a tester can reasonably look at when they go to a wood dust system and Jane's points, okay, uh, about, you know, what am I measuring and what does that mean? Can I make a reasonable assumption from that? Or if it's a well fumed system, what type of filters do I need? You know, I think there's a, a lack of understanding in the industry about filter classifications, particularly at the, the people who are going out testing. You know, some worksheets on the filter classifications. What can I reasonably expect when I go to see a welding system, if they're welding metal, steel or stainless? And what does it mean when I measure something? And then what reasonable assumptions can I put back? Because it's going back to the Levy conference and all the questions, but all answering and there's a there's a, such a mix of answers. You know, could we say, okay, well, here's you know whether it's I Levy's you know opinion or LEV Central's or a mixture of us saying, here are some guidelines which we think are are reasonable and everyone could work to. And even starting off with one worksheet, say let's take wood dust and put it out there and see how does this look? Is it something which we could reasonably then take to well fume, to recirculating fume covers, to solder? You know, o over time have a series of, of information sheets which people could, could work to. I will hop in here. I'm sorry, Bill, but um, there's a bit of background information that you probably none of you other than maybe Dean are aware of. So, um, Kenneth, I entirely agree with you. You're, you're absolutely right. What, <clears throat> what some of you are not aware of is that the information isn't available to the manufacturers. This actually goes right back in a loop to the manufacturers of the filter fabric who provide absolutely no information about the effectiveness of their filter fabric. They'll tell you what sort of coating they've put on it. They'll tell you um, how thick it is, um, but there is no, and they'll also quote various standards, most of which, you know, are complete bollocks to be perfectly honest <laughs> with you. When you actually start digging into it, you know, the whole filtration industry is full of waffle bollocks. Um, and that that is exactly what it is. I've been spending quite a lot of time as I leave, working with the HSC on identifying what the issues are. Um, and we've come to the conclusion that, yes, what Kenneth is asking for is what we're all crying out for. But before we get there, we need effective, simple test procedures, repeatable test procedures for the fabric. Standards for the fabric. Then you need simple standard test procedures for that fabric fitted to the manufacturer's equipment in a factory in test circumstances. So we can say these are the exact properties and standard of this fabric. This is how it performs in factory conditions, which are not real. And then we can say this is how it should perform under load, under duty in the workshops of people's clients. And these are the, these, this is the labelling and the standard that you should be looking for on the filter fabric that has been used. These are the standards and the tests that should have been subjected to before being turned into a wood waste filter on a unit. And this is what you should be looking for and testing for 
on site. And one of the one of the thoughts that the HSE have expressed to me that I think will be included when they finalise it, and they, they've agreed, they've been through all the standards that everybody has said, well, this standard is quoted and that standard is quoted, and they've come back and said, none of these standards are fit for purpose for this type of filter. People are trying to fit them to this type of filter and saying, does it comply with this standard or that standard? But they're just not relevant, they don't work. So new standards are required and they're working on them. The, I'm losing my thread now, so I'm gonna let somebody else pop in. Um, the last thing I want to say is that within the education sector, testing of fume cupboards, um, the on-site saturation testing and testing of the filters in fume cupboards in schools got stopped because of all of the difficulties in performing it. And that was replaced with a regime recommended by Cleats and endorsed by the HSE of changing recirculatory filters on educational style fume cupboards according to a strict calendar depending on where they were situated, so whether they were in the classroom or perhaps in the prep room, and which chemicals they were being used with. And they require those filters to be labelled, not with hours of use, which is interesting, coming back to our discussions earlier with Mark and half an hour a week and what have you. What the HSC and CLEEPS decided was all of these filters should be labelled when they're put in with the date they were put in and a date they need to be changed by. And those dates are specified. They're six months, 12 months and two years depending on exactly what they're being used for and whoever is changing the filter needs to label it accordingly. And I think we're going to end up with something like that, something that says for welding, for woodwork, this filter should meet this standard when it's fitted and regardless of the use, which is quite an onerous thing for them to say, but is it less onerous to say you must change a wood waste, wood waste filter every 12 months than to say whoever's testing it must have a look at exactly what is passing through the filter and coming back in? And my experience is that depending on use, a wood waste fabric filter can be fine from anywhere for 12 months to 15, 16 years. You know, if they're, only, if they're really only using it for five minutes a month, it's perfectly fine. You know, I've tested lots of them that are perfectly adequate 15, 16 years later. Um, and our recommendation would always be, well, this is well past its usual life. We suggest that you change it. But nonetheless, it's still working fairly effectively. And you don't know when it's going to fail. But I'm happy to answer any questions on the current um, HSE iLevy project on recirculatory filters, which I chair, which is how come I've got a certain amount of knowledge as to what's going on behind the scenes that maybe the rest of you are not really au fait with at the moment. And I promise not to talk for at least five minutes. Go on, Dean. I think you've had your hand up longest. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, James referred to um, the, well, it's not just I levy, there's, there's many of the industry um, people involved with the industry and regulatory forum with, of LEV, which is having a, a big discussion now on recirculating filters. And Jane has been a big part of it, as she said. And we've tried to have a meeting outside of that. So, 
if anybody does want to come and give us um, give their opinions, please do so. Get, get in touch with myself, Adrian, or Jane. But the other thing that we're looking at doing for my levy is um, very much what we were talking about before, direct reading instruments. And there's a lot to be said about it, but the big thing is how are they used? What do you get out of them? Because you've got to take into account things like humidity, temperature, um, what the substances are. So you you are limited in a direct reading instrument, but at least it gives you an indicative uh, point and it can lead to recommendations. So we're looking also at coming up with something on how to use these test instruments. And we've obviously got the BOHS involved in that because you need occupational hygienists involved with that. But it's another thing that I'm opening up to the floor now. If anybody on this call is wishes to be involved with that, to put their two penny within or more, please get back in touch with me. Um, that's that's really what I wanted to say. Uh, but as I say, Jane is uh, heading up the research um, filters of iLevy and other bodies who are involved. If you want to get if you want to get more information, Jane is definitely more involved with it than I am. Okay. Thank you. Melvin, do you want to go next? Yeah, if you um, if you look at manufacturers um, requirements, the, the standards that they work to are really just to encourage international trade and communication. They're not there for safety reasons. So the manufacturer obviously takes safety into consideration, but that's not the primary reason that these standards are written and they perform to a standard. It's it's to encourage international trade and allow communication. And the standards generally have always the same format. There'd be materials, they'll have dimension tolerances, um, the performance that the, the equipment may have to achieve. It will, it will tell you how to do sampling. It will then give you a list of test procedures that the manufacturer will follow to prove compliance with the standard, not with the end use of the device. It's to, to provide compliance with the standard. Now, where it becomes difficult when you start talking about recirculation filtration equipment is there's never ever going to be two situations that are identical. There will never ever be two um, assessors that will make the same determination of that um, particular site installation and its use. So it, it becomes even more difficult when you get the substances they're using. Now, because of cost saying that if anything has got like a a cancerous undertone, you have to get it down to as low as reasonably practical. You then get into the situation that the assessor may decide on a number that is so low that it can't be detected with the equipment that's that's detailed in the standard that the manufacturer has used. So it's not always easy just to write an end number and then relate that back to the filtration capabilities of a filter. Uh, particularly as most of these filter tests are done in, as I say, intrinsic conditions. They're done in, a, in, a, in an environment where there is no other interactions or other interferences. It's, it's always easier to um, get the performance criteria more detailed than in the site installation because you can actually uh, tweak all of the uh, performance criteria of everything else in the room 
to suit the test. You can't always do that on site. So I'm not sure whether we're ever going to get to where you can give an exact number that everyone will be able to follow. Again, I think we may have to settle for numbers within a framework that could be deemed acceptable rather than just say it must be less than 10 or it can't be any any more than five. You know, I don't think we'll get that situation. Um, just talking about manufacturers, I just want to relay a, um, an experience I've had recently uh, of a, buying a H13 HEPA filter from a, a supplier who claims it was H13. Um, and yet when we tested it, we found out it was absolutely useless and might as well not have been there. Um, the supporting evidence they provided us was from the material provider um which was based on a flat sheet of material and when they create it into a, a manufacture into a HEPA filter they pleat it and when they when they pleat the flat sheets it does that it breaks and down the pleats we were getting basically particulate coming straight through um because there's really no filter there at all it only takes a pinhole in a HEPA filter to to make it ineffective so you just need to be very wary of some of the, the claims you get from manufacturers. They they will say this material is good for whatever it is, but once they've manufactured it into their filter, that will change its dynamics. When you then install it into a plant, if it gets dropped, bumped, knocked, damaged in any sort of way, that will make it ineffective. So. Just as a word of caution, really, don't always believe what you see written on the manufacturer's literature. It may be correct, as Melvin was saying, for the product they started out with, but it isn't always the same thing you get on site, which you are then testing. So it's a, don't always believe what you see. Okay. For me, I think it's difficult because the, you know, I've had, I've come across this a couple of times in site installations. Like there was some testing being done on some microbiological safety cabinets, and the uh, the, the tester was following exactly exactly the instructions that was in the manual of the piece of test equipment that he was using, which was a potassium iodide chydiscus equipment. But what he was finding was, as he moved from one device to another, he was getting higher readings. But what he was getting was cross-contamination where he hadn't cleaned the equipment when he took it from one device to another one. Now, when you read the manual for the Chi Discus at that time, what it actually told the tester to do was to clean the equipment at the end of, at the end of his testing. Well, if somebody starts in the morning and they work to the evening, they've not finished their testing if they move from one piece of equipment to another. So I'm always slightly hesitant to criticise manufacturers too much if the procedures that a tester has used are either not in accordance with what the manufacturer has used or could be influenced by other conditions that would not be present in the manufacturer's installation in a type test room. Now, I'm not a manufacturer, so I'm not defending manufacturers. I'm, I'm just trying to relate to sometimes it's not always a black and white situation that somebody is right and wrong. There are sometimes detection levels of equipment can be different um you know and pe 
the worst thing for me is when people make claims. When me, people make claims for compliance with certain standards, and th and then quite obviously they're not they're not achieving them. Now that does two things. One, it weakens the confidence in the standard that they're claiming compliance with because people start to question whether that's wrong or they're wrong. And then you get the situation where you're left with a client who's got a, a manufactured product that tells you it has to perform to this level and you're saying it doesn't. 